Morning, everyone. If you have Romans 8 open already, uh, head there or open up on your phone or whatever it is, uh, and we're going we're gonna to dive in there um, in a couple of minutes together. Um, before, we, before we look at that, uh, one of the, one of the uh, joys of being able to travel is that you can tell stories that hopefully won't get back to... Uh, uh, these days it's a bit, it gets, gets trickier and trickier as you... Uh, with social media and all of these kinds of things. So I take it this isn't being recorded, but... Uh, uh, when I was growing up, I, uh, I distinctly remember the first time I ever stole something. Um, we, we grew up in an area of Johannesburg called uh, uh, Parkwood. We had moved in. I was born on a farm outside Joburg, and we moved into the, into the city. Uh, and we lived in an area called Parkwood. And uh, my brother and I would ride our bicycle um, to the Kalani Mall, and uh, back then, every, every uh, mall, every corner had a little cafe, like, um, I suppose, I don't know if you, do you have 7-Elevens here? Yeah. Like that kind of uh, uh, vibe kind of thing. Oh, you don't have 7-Elevens? <laughs> if you just wandering around in a stupor, wandering into a shop that you thought was the 7-Eleven. So it's like a corner little shop convenience store, and uh, back then they were all the rage everywhere, and they all seemed to be run by an old Greek couple, uh, pretty much... <laughs> Every single one of them, and the one at our place was no different. My brother, it was all my brother's idea, uh, he decided that because we had no pocket money, we should go there and steal some sweets and then, and then make off with the sweets. I was thinking, this is not a good idea. He's like, he convinced me, I'm not sure how. And so off we went on our bikes and we snuck into this shop. And I can just remember, as I was remembering the story, remember my heart racing and ducking and diving. And there's a section of the shop where no one could see anything, and we just grabbed. It wasn't like grand theft, you know, just a, couple of, just a couple of odds and ends and chewing gum and whatever else, and we walked out, and you know, you sort of, I just remember walking out with this panicky feel like someone's going to catch us just before we get out, uh, and no one, no one stopped us, and off we went, and still nobody, and I was looking behind for the Greek lady to come running out the shop, and nothing, on our bikes, gone, uh, and I just remember at first this feeling of elation, like we got away with it, and that was, but that was very temporary. Very short-lived. The next wave of emotion was just this, this deep guilt. As we were eating, these sweets just came crashing over me, just like, I have done a bad thing. I have done a bad thing. And uh, I try to shake it off, and, and, and I think, you know, when you're young like that, you can shake those things off after a while. But we then went back to that cafe, because there weren't many places to buy sweets near us. And I remember the first time I went back to that cafe, I walked in thinking, they know what I did. They know what I did. I fully expected to see my picture up on the back behind the cash register, like, if you see this young man, you know, you know restrain him or something like that. He just walked around the shop, you know, um, getting whatever. And I remember pain, you know, because our parents used to send us to the cafe to do all these errands and pain and just thinking, she knows, she knows. Oh, and she didn't bring it up and going. And just this gnawing feelings of guilt. And um, whenever I read uh, this passage in Romans, uh, I remember... Not just that, but many other experiences I've had with, with guilt. Uh, because guilt is a very strange uh, emotion. It's a very weird thing. Um, w- some of us feel guilty about things that we, we shouldn't feel guilty about. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a guilt imposed on us by um, family, by work responsibilities. I mean, we, we could spend the whole day talking about illegitimate, illegitimate sources of guilt that come just... And they weigh on you, but they shouldn't be there. And, uh, but then there is a, another category of, of legitimate sources of guilt where we have really done things wrong. And, and we should feel 
that, 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 a little bit of that weight on us. Uh, there's, an, there's another category where, uh, and this I think is perhaps the most terrifying space to be in, is where we, we feel numb to guilt. Where, where we, it, it no longer sort of troubles us. We, we have so ingrained um, certain patterns in our lives where, you know, initially we felt sort of the, the, the pinprick of guilt or that wave of condemnation or something, but we've managed to shake it off in such a robust way over such a long period of time that we no longer, we no longer feel guilty about certain things. And, and maybe some of you are here this morning and, you, and you're, I'm, I'm not going to out you, but you, you're familiar with those patterns in your life. And maybe one of God's gifts to you today would be to re, re-sensitize you to, to the gracious conviction of the Holy Spirit, to, to prick us again that we, we would feel something. It's like, wow, that is not right. I, no matter how I sanitize it, no matter how convinced myself of it, 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 it is not right. There is, a, there is a problem. Let's have a look at these two verses and then we'll, we'll unpack them. We're not going to do anything uh, akin to rocket science. We're basically, this is what we do at our church back home, we just, uh, we just preach through books of the Bible and we go through every word and we see what God has to say to us. So uh, that's pretty much what we do. I know Andrew is an outstanding preacher and he can fix any mess that I make when he gets back from Singapore. Um, So Romans 8, verses 1 and 2. Um, I'm reading from the ESV. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We're just focusing on those two verses, so let's read them again. Let's look at them. I'd love them to just wash over our minds this morning and our hearts. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The first word I want us to look at there is condemnation, because that's where everything turns on that. And that's probably... Uh, one of the more contentious ones. Uh, I don't suppose that, um, that all of you come to church on a regular basis. This may be the first time you've been to church uh, in, 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 in a long time or ever. Uh, and, so, and you're obviously, as Andrew said, you're most welcome here. But in the, uh, in, the, in the church culture and in the culture of those who don't go to church, there's a lot of um, confusion around condemnation. Who are you to condemn me? I mean, it's almost like if you, this is a, an argument that, where we find our church in Johannesburg, a lot of people's resistance to coming to church is why on earth would I want to go on a Sunday and join a group of people who would just make me feel more condemned? I mean, sign me up for that. You know? Uh, oh, oh, yeah, it doesn't matter that they're friendly, that they've got nice coffee and all those kinds of things, and they sing, and the singing's not all that awful. But why would I want to come and be a part of all your friendship group there? I know what goes on there. You sing a bit, and you're friendly to each other, and then somebody jumps up, and then they read out of that book, and they just, they just tell everybody what they should be doing and shouldn't be doing, and they make everyone feel bad. And that's why they need Jesus, because they're bad people and he's good and all those kinds of things. But the abiding ob- obstacle that people have is that Christians are about this. We're about laying condemnation on people for what they uh, either should be doing that they're not, or are doing that they shouldn't be doing. And then that's what we're about. That's the reputation that we have, particularly in, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, particularly in South Africa. We've got a good rap, uh, a reputation for that. But what is this, what is this word condemnation? I mean, is it valid? 
is it valid? Because the verse all turns uh, on, on this and then one other phrase, a name actually. So let's first have a look at this condemnation. What is it talking about? Well, uh, without digging too deeply here, this is the summary of it. This word condemnation refers to a guilty verdict and the resultant punishment. A guilty verdict and then the resultant punishment. So it's not just that you're guilty. There is a punishment attached to the guilty verdict for having done something wrong, and then you will pay a resultant punishment for that. So if you're paying any attention, your first question should be guilty of what? Guilty of what? Who is going to find me guilty of what? Who and of what? And we could spend again the whole morning on this, but let me summarize this for the sake of brevity. We are guilty collectively of breaking God's law. We are guilty collectively of breaking God's law. Now, some of you should be pushing back on this and saying, I, I, yeah, Doug, it's just as well you're visiting because I really disagree with you on this. I'm not a lawbreaker. Uh, I'm a good person. I, I, I'm actually an above average person. Here I am on a Sunday morning listening to you. I mean, how, you know, if you had to put me on a chart of people, I'd be up in the upper echelons kind of thing. Guilty of breaking God's law. And as a Christian, this really, this really um, rat, this rattled me. I really struggled with this. I became a Christian when I was 17. And up until that point, this was an area where things were quite hazy for me. I became a Christian, I know it sounds strange, through the preaching of an old Baptist preacher. He was wonderful. His name was Rex Matthew. And he came to our church and he preached three sermons. He was, this, he was actually a, f- a physics professor but by education. A wonderful, colorful preacher. And he, I think he was part Scottish, and he was just, as a young 16-year-old, 16, 17-year-old guy, uh, I just looked at this guy and I thought, you're a nutter. You're a nutter. But he preached about Jesus in such a compelling way. And, and, and the Spirit of God used his message to do this to me, to bring me to a point. I know it sounds crazy, to bring me up to a point where I had this crushing weight that I'd done something wrong. And, and I mean, to be fair, I hadn't lived a very colorful life. You know, I wasn't into drugs and all those kind of drinking and like this debaucherous 16-year-old kind of thing. You know, I was a fairly decent kind of person. But just God had graciously brought me to a point where I just felt that I was not in a right relationship, that I'd offended God, that I'd broken a law and, and sinned against Him. And then, then, then this, he, he came with this double news that that was the situation, but then Jesus could, had a remedy for that. And that's what brought me to faith. He preached that three Sunday evenings in a row. Same thing. It just sounded like he was repeating the same message. I was like, can I not have any other material? Uh, and, and I was way too proud to, you know, uh, go up and, you know, pray a prayer and give my life to Jesus and all that kind of stuff. I just I, I said a prayer when I got back home uh, after the third evening. And my life turned around radically. And I'll share a bit more about that later. But it, it, it got to this. And this is where it's become clearer for me in my interactions with a lot of people. Because people push back and say, I haven't broken God's law. I haven't broken God's law. I haven't broken any laws. But you have to answer the question what Jesus puts to you. When they, when they put the question to Jesus, what, what, what are the most important commandments? Summarize God's law for us. What does he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's, that's how he summarizes the Ten Commandments there. And so when I have conversations with people, I say that to them. I say, well, 
Okay, cool. Let's not look at it. You haven't murdered anybody. You're not on the, on the chart that you have of righteousness. You're not that person. Maybe you're not the best person you know, but you're not the worst person you know by a long shot. But can you honestly say to me that you have loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And you have loved your neighbor as yourself. If, if you have done that consistently, I mean, if that's you this morning, if you've done that consistently, you're free to go early. Yeah, you can grab coffee. You're, Sunday is yours. You can go and play in the sun outside. It doesn't quite work here, does it? You can go and do something else in London. Because everything else that I'm going to say to you uh, is redundant. Because you're perfect. You have kept God's law fully. But, but I think in our sober moments, we all know, if I put those two things to you, regardless of where you stand in relationship to Jesus Christ, you would have to answer that you have not loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loved your neighbor as yourself consistently without lapsing once. I think in our sober moments, we'd all agree to that. And then we find ourselves in the book of James, and this is a verse that levels us. James 1 verse 10. If you're making notes, just write down James 1 verse 10. You can go and look at it later or you can turn there. It says this. James says this. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. That is a, that is a weighty verse. It's a terrifying verse. It's like you've kept all of these things and you've missed one, one bit of it. You become guilty of all of it. It doesn't then matter how much... Uh, of it you have kept, how obedient you have been, your obedience, if it falls short on one count, you are rendered guilty of all of it. And so we stand condemned, found guilty, and expecting and awaiting a resultant punishment because we have broken God's law. That's the foundation of this verse. But the next word I want you to look at, I mean, this gets fancier and fancier, uh, no. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. This is, this is, and we're moving into the good news. We're out of the deep stuff here. No condemnation in Christ. Why? Have a look at verse 2 there. It says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. There's been an exchange that's happened. There's been an exchange. There's been some interaction. There's been something that's gone on. By the work of the Spirit of God. Now, I'm talking now if you're a Christian, and we'll get into this a bit more later. But there are two different ways to live. There are two ways that you can live your life. One is under a, a one set of laws. And that, that, that law is governed by or, or what Paul says, sin and death. It's both, it, 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 it comes about as a result of sin, and the resultant uh, end of it is death. It's characterized by spiritual death and being captured in sin. Sin reigns here. Sin calls the shots. And there's a spiritual dead death and deadness here, and which will result in an ongoing deadness and a separation from God. That's one way to live your life. And another way is under the law of the spirit of life, where life is given by the spirit of God and makes us, makes us alive spiritually and alive to God and it ensures that we know life both now and then forevermore. And those are, two, those are two different worlds to live in. They're two different laws to live under. And what, what Paul is saying here is that the spirit of life does something to those of us who live here and moves us from living under this law 
you know, run and ordered and controlled by sin and death and moved us into, into this law where the, where the Spirit reigns, where the Spirit gives life and changes us and makes us different people. The law does two things. It deals with the penalty of sin and it deals, changes the power of sin over us. When I understood these things as a new Christian, uh, things started to happen in my life. I realized uh, with growing measure, I still, this is, this is not something for new Christians, this is something for everyone who walks with God. That the penalty for sin in your life has been paid for and has been put on Christ. And God will never bring it up with you again. You need, you need to soak your heart. I know you don't marinate meat here. Do you marinate meat? I mean, not, not in the way South Africans do it. You, you try. You try. Uh, it's a good effort. But uh, we know how to marinate meat. You, know, you soak it in there. And like, oh, the meat just like, the meat, it's just like got it all in it. Oh, oh, gosh, I need to go home. Uh, it's just got it all in it kind of thing. You know, and you cook it, you're bright, and it's just like, it's so flavorful. It's just rich. You need to put your heart in a, in a gospel marinade and leave it there to just, you know, we allow these things to just wash over us. And if you've been a Christian for a while, sometimes you're quite jaded by that fact. You're jaded by truth. You're just like, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I know that. I know that. Amen. Oh, yes. <laughs> do, you, do you wake up and allow your heart just to marinate in the truth that the penalty for sin, the result in punishment, has been taken off you and placed on Christ? And when, when, when the Father looks at you, He's not raising sin issues with you. When he wants to have a conversation with you, that's not what he's leading with. That's not what he's leading with. It's not like, yeah, you know, I grew up in a very uh, um, rule-bound home. My dad died when I was young. My mom was a very strong authoritarian. And it took me a long time walking as a Christian. Uh, when I closed my eyes and I thought of God, to not think of him with a stern-looking face looking at me. We're just watching, you can do a bit better there. I grew up, those were my mom's words ringing in my ears. You can, do, you can do better. Every time you get a report card, play sport, whatever, I was very sporty when I was growing up. And if you didn't shoot the lights out of it, that's all I would hear. You could have done better. Could have done better. Could have done better. And as I closed my eyes and I thought of God, that became my image of God. God always looking at me saying, you can do better. You can do better. Not this, not this face which, by God's grace, has changed for me. Just this, this adoring face looking at me with a tenderness and a love uh, and a compassion and a gentleness. You know, a, a face that is set towards me, not having to try to get his attention by my brilliant Christian behavior and obedience. You know, Christian tap dancing, like, look at me, God, look at me, God, pay attention. Ooh, you know, have you ever seen that when you've seen parents out with their kids? The kids are so desperate for their parents' attention, they're actually misbehaving and they're losing their minds. All they want is the parents to look at them. And some of us, we, our walk with God is a bit like that. We're doing so much Christian activity, so much spiritual stuff. Like, God, look at me, notice, notice. God, I've got a new Bible. God, I strung together seven quiet times or whatever you want to call them this week. Look at me, God, look at me. Aren't you impressed? Aren't you pleased with me? I'm at church again. I haven't missed church for like three months. I even helped them put out the chairs this morning. I mean, God, you know, I'm like a super apostle Christian kind of thing. I could be on your A team. And I, we laugh about it, but deep in our hearts, there's something there where we, where we think we have to perform 
we have to perform to get God's attention or to get God's affection. And the truth of this verse is that God has taken the penalty of sin away from us. And the love that he has for the son, he has for us. That's what Jesus talks about uh, in John. He says, Father, I have loved them with the love that you have given me. You love them the way you love me. I mean, as you sit here this morning, if you're a Christian, the father loves you with the same love that he has for his son. You just, when I talk about marinating your heart in good things, that's one of the things you need to... It, it, it's, it's almost too deep a thought to really do much justice with it this morning. You need to write it down and remind yourself of it every morning as you wake up and allow your identity and your image to slowly be transformed, slowly be shaped. Say, this is how God feels about me. This is what God thinks when he looks at me. Because we're, we're always, we're up there either with our sin or with our activity. We're over there with other kinds of righteousness or religion. We're not just sitting there. God, you love me because you have set your affection on me and you have taken sin from me and placed it on your own son and now you cherish me now and for all eternity. But not only have you removed the penalty of sin, you've broken the power of sin in me. This was one of the things that really changed for me and I noticed that as I became a Christian, I noticed that I woke up the next morning and in those coming weeks after I became a Christian, I knew a different power. A, a new, because I'd grown up around the church, so I knew everything I should do. I knew everything I should do, but I felt powerless to actually ever do it. You know, I had like little stabs at obedience and keeping the, the rules and stuff, but it just never had any legs. It never had any longevity to it. And when I became a Christian, suddenly... I realized that, and this is what the Bible says, God will put his spirit in you. In Ezekiel, said, God will put his spirit in you. He'll give you a new heart, new desires to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and put his spirit in you to enable you to keep his decrees and walk in his ways. So you won't be winding it up in yourself. God will graciously get inside you and give you both new desires for himself and a new power to live in his ways. It's, it, it's radical stuff. It's radical stuff and it should change and it should thrill us. It should thrill us. And when you, if you're sitting here this morning and you're finding that you've got a repetitive pattern of sin, a repetitive pattern of disobedience, my, my call to you would be not to try harder, not to try harder, not to do more, not to, do, to, to, to wind it in, wind your heart back to, this, not, to the knowledge of this truth, that God is in you. It's his power that overcomes sin. You can have all the accountability groups in the world around you doing all of those things. And I'm not saying those things are bad. But unless you are leaning primarily on the power of God in your life to overcome sin and patterns of rebellion against God, all of those external things will mean nothing to you. And they will not help you. It's the promise and the help of God there. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is no condemnation. Not a little bit of condemnation. Many of us live like that. We, we get it, Jesus, you've taken most of it. The, 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 you've, you've, you've lowered it to a level that we can deal with. Thank you, God. Wonderful. You've put this thing within our means that if we put enough effort in, if we get our life together, we can take care of the rest of it. No, we can't. We are powerless. And the great news of the gospel is that God has taken all of the condemnation on his son and left us with nothing 
because we're in Christ. The next word is now. There is therefore now no condemnation. Some Christians live like this is a future possibility. Oh, I'm holding out hope. One day in heaven I'll be free from this. One day in heaven. Yeah, and there's a sense in which when Christ comes back and he reconciles all things to himself, and everything's going to be different. But this is a current reality. This is a current reality. I don't know how many of you are on Facebook. I can Facebook for the most part. I still have an account, but I think I can't remember the last time I ever visited and did anything. Facebook used to have this thing where you could update your relationship status. Your relationship status, you know, it's complicated. Or, and they had all these like interesting, I don't know if they still have those things. Anyone on Facebook here? Okay. <laughs> oh, and uh, I mean, it's been a while since I had to change my Facebook status, you know, relationship status. I've been married for like, a good 15, 16 years or so. Um, so I don't plan to change it or do anything like I think my wife's still on Facebook. She may notice like, oh, I see you. But if you had to put forward a, a, a status that you have with God, what would you put? What would you put? What would be the status of your relationship with God right now, not in the future? The one that God has put next to your name is not condemned. Not condemned. Set free. Not guilty. In terms of your relationship with God, those are the scriptures that he has stamped. He has stamped them over your life. This is not a changing thing. It's like, well, at the moment, yeah, I'm in a good space with God. Uh, I'm just waiting for, uh, I've wandered in the past, I'm going to wander in the future. No, no, no. This, this, is a, this is a now and forever thing that God has stamped on you and changed your relationship status with him. But the truth of it is that it's for those who are in Christ. Those in Christ. If you, if you don't like writing in your Bible, I will encourage you to seek help um, and overcome that res- re- reluctance and that resistance. Get a highlighter, get pens, and take to your Bible and go and start in the beginning of the New Testament and find every reference to in Him and in Christ. Circle it and highlight it, and you will be amazed at how this is a central tenet of what it means to be a Christian. This is how you are described as a Christian. If you're a Christian, you are in Christ. He is in you. And the New Testament reaches for so many different uh, pictures and imagery to describe what what is this? What does it mean to be in Christ and Him to be in us? Is it like a vine and branches? Which one is in which? Is the vine in the branches or the branches in the vine? No, no, well, they're together. They're united. They're connected. Is your head part of your body or is is your body part of your head? Well, you know, it doesn't normally work well if you separate one from the other, you know, all the life goes. Ah, Christ is the head. We're the, we're the body. We're connected. Connected. It reaches for all this imagery to help us understand that when it comes in a spiritual sense, we are connected to Christ and He to us. The life we live is His life in us. We could spend a lot more on this. Listen, I'll, I'll, I'll list these verses. You can dig into them later if you are so inclined. It says in Galatians 2 verse 20 that we are crucified with him. That we are crucified with Christ. It says in Colossians 2 verse 20, we died with him. It says in Romans 6 verse 4 that we were buried with Christ. It says in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 5 and 6 that we were made alive and raised up with Christ. It says there in verse 6 that we are right now 
positionally seated in the heavenly places with Christ. Right now, now, in a spiritual sense, that's what's happened to us. Everything has happened to Christ because we're in Him. It's happened to us. Death, burial, resurrection, exaltation with the Father. Positionally, that would be you if you're a Christian. You are in Christ. You're not left off to try your hardest and do things in your own power on your own. You are in Him. This is the most fundamental thing as I've walked with new Christians. This is all we do. This is all we do. I just take them to the New Testament. I say, look here, this is you. Start in Ephesians. This is you, 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 this is you. And everywhere where they say, but, we go back, rewind. Okay, well, hold on. This is you, this is you, this is you, this is you. Because we have such a warped identity of who we are and whose we are. And as we become Christians, we need to learn. And the Spirit of God helps us and teaches us, this is who you are in God. And it, because behavior flows from that. Uh, the normal Christian approach has been, uh, yes, you reconciled to God. You've been a bad person. Jesus paid for your sin. And now, you know, try to be a good person. But the, that penalty and that threat's been removed. Now, tidy up your behavior. Start acting like a Christian. Start acting like a Christian. And so most of us throw our energy into behavior management. We're helping people say, don't do that, don't do that. Try this, do this, whatever. But Jesus makes it clear that our behavior always comes from deep down inside of us. The fruit of our lives is connected deeply to the roots of what we believe about ourselves and what they go down into. So we don't worry about the behavior of the people in our church. We don't worry about it. All we go for is what they believe. All we go for is what they believe about God and what they believe about themselves. We just go there. Again and again and again. This is who you are. This is who God is. This is who you are. This is who God is. And you know what actually happens after a while? The behavior starts to change. It's slow and steady. But behavior changes because people are living out of a different belief. And it's affecting what you see uh, above the, the tree line, the fruit of their lives. Those who are in Christ. That's the great news. In Christ, there's no condemnation now for them. Now, we understand this as an objective truth, many of us. But if I had to quiz you on the subjective reality of this, you may have a hard time. And this is where our walk with God goes up and down, doesn't it? Why is this? Because our consciences still condemn us. If I was to quiz the room and poll you here, I'm pretty sure that all of you would be embarrassed about something you have done. We go, we start with Andrew. So there's, something, there's something that's happened in your life that if we put it up on the screen here, I mean, you would, be one, you would want to be under the chair. Like, I'm so embarrassed, I'm so ashamed I ever did that. It may be yesterday, and it may be 20 years ago, but there's things. And you know what happens is that our, those things come to our minds, and they come into our memories, and guilt and shame wash over us again. The associated memory and the consciousness, they wash over us again. Many of us have non-Christian friends who delight in, in pointing out how far fall, how, how far short we fall of what we say we should be. They say, well, you're a Christian. Gosh, look at the way you live. Heavens, you know. You're the worst advert for a Christian or for the church on the planet, you know. Like, oh, you say this. And the, the, the attack of hypocrisy, that charge of hypocrisy leveled at Christians, that can floor you. That can knock all the wind out of your sails as a Christian. Just to realize that, like, that, 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 that probing, that finger being pointed at you. Yeah, you're just not, not a very good Christian. 
Not a very good Christian. You call, you call yourself a Christian. Oh, gosh. You're the, you're the reason I don't come to church. And you just feel absolutely condemned, crushed with shame. You open up your Bible. And you see the perfection of the law. You see all the things that you should be doing. And you realize, I am not a very good Christian. I am falling fairly far short. All these things I should be doing. All these things I should be. And look at my life. I am I'm very disobedient. I'm just not that good a Christian. And then you look around the church or at other churches and you think, oh, these guys, they all have their act together. Yeah, yeah. If, everyone is a better Christian than me. I mean, you, you lose your, we, as Christians, we always lose our way in two different areas. We either think that we're better than other Christians or we think we're worse than them. And they both have their roots in self-righteousness. Look around the room. Just think of the other Christians that you know in your world. Are you better than them or worse than them? Yeah, you see, like you're busy computing this. Like, yeah, no, you've even got a scorecard. You've got a chart that would l- give you results. Because we're so wired like this to look left and right and think, well, you know, I'm better than no, yes, no, up, down. And that affects how we think God views us. And Satan climbs in on this. The devil climbs in on this. Jesus says, in John 8, I'll read it now, but in Revelation, I, won't have, I don't have time to read the passage, but it talks about him being the one who accuses us night and day. Satan accuses Christians night and day. And when Jesus is speaking in a conversation, a very frank conversation he's having in John chapter 8, he refers to Satan as the father of lies. There's no truth in him. When he speaks, he just lies. That's his native tongue. All he can do every time he speaks is lie. Lie. And this is, I, I find, as I walk with Christians year after year, that this is an area where many of us fall on our faces. We, we allow ourselves to be spoken at. We listen to ourselves rather than speak to ourselves from the Word, allow the Spirit of God to to remind us of who we are. We listen to this tidal wave of this is what you've done. This is how you stack up against everybody else. This is what everybody else thinks of you. And Satan's there just accusing us, accusing us and lying to you, lying to you, saying God can't possibly forgive you for that. You have repented of that. You have done business with God on that a million times. Last time you said you would never do it again and that lasted about three weeks. You're obviously not a Christian. Because the, the Bible says that you would have a new heart and new desires and then you'd walk in his ways and you don't seem to be able to do that. So maybe you're not a Christian. You can't be a Christian. God's certainly not happy with you. He can't be pleased with you. He's pleased with the others, not with you. There he is. Ja, ja, ja. Lies, lies, lies. Accusation again and again and again. And you walk through life weighed down with condemnation and guilt and accusation. And we, and we have churches filled with people whose joy evaporates. It's totally not there because they're listening to the wrong people. They listen to themselves and they're letting the devil have a field there with their mind. They're not letting the word shape. This is who you are. This is whose you are. And this is what he is making you. So how do we remedy these things? All these things conspiring to make us feel condemned. How do we remedy these things? Well, you can deny that guilt exists. You can just say, no, and that's a common thing in our culture. We sanitize it, we rationalize it. You can read medical journals that talk about how bad guilt is for people. And you can find and you can construct something that would give you a free pass to say, don't feel bad about it. Guilt is a bad thing. 
you could probably find it in a fair. Do you have a fair lady magazine here? Cosmopolitan? One of those ladies' magazines or something like that. There'll be an article in there if you buy it often enough that'll tell you how bad guilt is for you. So don't worry about it. Just shake it off. Let it go. But you know what? It doesn't actually solve the problem. Denying it doesn't help. You can rationalize it. So you can find a million excuses for why. Yeah, well, this happened, this happened, this happened. You don't understand my life, all of these things. We can rationalize how we find ourselves in the position that we're in. That also, also doesn't work. And our third option would be to work our way out of it. So I understand I'm guilty. You know what I'm going to do? From today onwards, I'm going to knuckle down. I'm going to be the best person I can be. I'm going be, to be, be, be the best me. Be the best me. Have you ever heard that? Be the best you. You know? And like we almost treat, if you're a Christian, you, you treat it like scales. You feel the weight of condemnation on this side. And you think, well, if I could just add up a bit of church attendance and Bible reading and prayer and just get my act together, I can, I can tip the scales like this. And then surely God will be okay with that. We won't say it like that, but this is how we function. I would propose to you as we close a different way that we put all of our eggs in one basket. And it's in the basket of God's grace and forgiveness. It says, those in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation. Can I lead us as we pray together? I want us to spend just a, a minute or two together. I would love for you to um, be honest with God. Uh, at our church, we have uh, a wonderful, by God's grace, a wonderful culture where we where we uh, end our services, not end the service, but end the preaching section like this, where I ask people just to close our eyes and just pray together and say, what is God saying to you? How do you see God in the light of what you've just heard? Because uh, if your culture is anything like ours, most of us just rush into the rest of the day. There's a million other things that are already on your mind. You're wondering, here in London, maybe you've parked in the wrong place and your t- parking's going to run out and you're going to end up owing them like a, a hundred million pounds or whatever it is, which is common in this place. But, you know, we'll pick up that. I'd love you to just sit and allow, just for these few minutes, you allow your heart to soak in this truth. Where are you with God? For some of you, you're nowhere. Some of you do not know Him. And today may be the day where you you get a chance to get introduced to God. And, And the shame and the guilt and the condemnation, the weight that you feel when you're sober and honest enough with yourself, the invitation of God is to say, you don't have to live like that anymore. You don't have to. That is the gracious invitation of God to say, He has taken that. All of the penalty, the weight, the shame, and the guilt of whatever it is you've done, He's removed it and placed it on His Son. It's not that it wasn't a big deal. It was a really big deal. But He placed it on His Son. And His offer to you is forgiveness and freedom. So let's pray. Let's pray together. Just as we pray, a helpful exercise is just to picture, to picture God's face towards you, like I mentioned earlier. And picture His face. Picture that expression. What, what is the express, expression etched on His face this morning towards you? What's His posture like to you? He's sitting back you know, on His grand throne, arms crossed, scowling at you because He knows He knows what you've been up to. He knows how apathetic you've been. Knows the sin that you've been mudding your life with. Ask God today to give you, by the work of the Spirit, a picture of of what's true. That your Father, if you are in Christ, 
Your Father looks at you with affection, with tenderness, with love, with arms that are open, inviting, delighting in you because you are His. Not because you are delightful, but because He has set His affection on us. And in His mercy, He has lavished grace on us, on you. He has not treated us as our sins deserve, but He has welcomed us in. They just barge in like kids do. They just barge in with their parents, expecting to be loved, expecting to be swept up and embraced and loved and hugged and kissed and made a fuss over. That is the Father over you this morning if you are in Christ. Thank you, Father, for that. Thank you for the freedom. Thank you for the life of the Spirit that sets us free from the law of sin and death and brings us into this life, into this joy, into wonder. You have been so good to us. You are so good to us. Your face is towards us. It's so good. It's so wonderful to be loved by you. Thank you, Father, for removing from us the penalty of sin and the power of it that held us captive, unable to love you, unable to worship, unable to obey. You have done a miracle in us. We want to say this morning that we love you. Help us when we lapse into self-righteousness. Help us when we lapse into behavioralism, into effort. Help us just to remember there is no condemnation right now for those who are in Christ. If you feel like you are this morning still looking in, as it were, from the outside, you, does it all make sense to you? But you feel, you feel provoked by something you can't explain perhaps this morning. I would encourage you to respond to God's invitation this morning, to take steps towards him. He is, he is taking steps towards you. His invitation is outstretched arms to you, welcoming you to receive the free gift of life in Jesus Christ, forgiveness and joy and freedom from shame. I would encourage you to respond uh, to him this morning. Just say, God, I don't understand all of this stuff. I have no idea what you're doing in my life, but you are pressing my buttons, and I want to respond to what you're doing. Thank you for, for this. This really does sound too good to be true, and yet it is.